listeners. I'm Irene Barton, Executive Director of the Cobb Collaborative, and I welcome you to Mind Your Mind Speaks. This is a podcast series that brings together subject matter experts and community leaders to help raise awareness, share resources, and inspire action through recorded conversations about mental health and well-being topics. Today, we are delighted to welcome Laura Searcy to our program. Laura, while I've had the pleasure and privilege of knowing you for several years, please tell our listeners about yourself. Good afternoon, Irene. I'm delighted to be here. And I am Laura Searcy. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner. I have been a nurse for, I even hate to say this to myself, approaching five decades now. Uh, (laughs) My career began in pediatric uh, intensive care nursing, both uh, with cardiac open heart kids and general pediatric ICU kids and tiny little creamy baby kids. And after a 15-year career doing that, I went back to Emory, got my master's degree, and was certified as a pediatric nurse practitioner, did primary care pediatrics office space for a number of years. But the thread through all of that is when I did my master's degree, I had a concentration in injury prevention, and I've always had a passion for child wellness and helping kids grow to be the healthiest and the best they can be and maximizing their potential. So that has led me into a lot of prevention work, be it substance use, yeah, substance use prevention work mm-hmm. and uh, you know, physical injury prevention work. But I've, that's always been my, where my heart has been is a passion for making life better for kids and helping them overcome any of the negative influences in their lives that they can't control. So prevention is a multi-leveled description, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Laura, so well. Um, Well, I want to warmly welcome you to our podcast again, and thank you for all that you have done to care for children and youth in our community. And you have, in addition to your particular Um, passion around prevention, you have a particular knowledge base, um, an extensive knowledge base about the intersection of the adolescent brain and addiction. So we don't have time today to go really deeply into brain development, but in just a few minutes, Laura, can you walk us through the brain development stages of of a child? um, And as that child progresses to adolescence and then into young adulthood, What's happening inside there, and why is the adolescent brain more susceptible to addiction? I'd be delighted to. And wow, you you asked me to compress what could be a college course in neurology yes. to five minutes. But yes. yeah, there are two periods in time where the human brain is growing and developing in its fastest, and that is as we see from birth through age three. When you see what happens from a tiny baby who appears to be totally helpless that needs everything done for it to, to a child of age three that is actively engaging in their world, verbal. Uh, it, it's amazing how much brain development is done, has gone on. And then that brain development continues, but reaches another peak uh, at about age 10. And between age 10 and uh, through into the early tw- to mid-20s, the brain is going through that second period of rapid, rapid change and growth. And to kind of make it more simple, a few analogies, and the human brain kind of develops from the back to the front. So the frontal lobe, the executive functioning, 
You know, how many times when your kids were teenagers, did you want to look at them and say, what were you thinking? And the answer to that question is there was no thought involved because that, that, you know, frontal lobe executive functioning, managing the, you know, how is this going to affect me in five years if I do this? And those kinds of thought processes, they're just not there yet. They're Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, adolescents are primed to learn about their environment, to grow, to be independent human beings. They have to try out new things. So they're much more likely to seek out novel experiences without much judgment about whether those experiences are going to be positive or negative for their long-term development. And that feeds into why, um, you know, experimentation with substances and initial substance use is most common in that period of time. Unfortunately, And many people still hold the view that, yeah, they're risk takers. There's nothing we can do about this. This is almost like a normal rite of passage. Uh, And as long as they don't get into the hard drugs like heroin, they'll be okay. Well, we also now know through some of the brain science and and the research that we had in the years that that perception that it's all okay and it's not risky couldn't be further than the truth. Because while that brain is immature and growing, any early exposure to substances hijacks the normal development of especially the risk and reward system of the brain, changes both the structure and function of how all the neurotransmitters and the feel-good chemicals in your brain develop, and really puts them at higher risk to develop a substance use disorder. What we know now, and and I have to be careful that it doesn't get turned around the other way. What we know about people who have struggled with substance use disorder, with addiction, uh, universally, all, all folks, if you ever hear a recovery story, they will say that they started using something. And it's usually the substances that are most easily obtained by kids. And that's alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana Mm -hmm. at age eight age 10, age 12. And the research is quite clear that 90% of folks that eventually go on to need treatment for substance misuse disorders started first use under the age of 18. Now, that's not to say that every kid that picks up a vape product before age 18 is doomed to be an addict. That's not what I'm saying at all. But some of us have more risk for addiction uh, than others based on genetics, based on environment. And you, you can't tell out of, if you see 10 teenagers, which are the ones that if they play around with stuff a little bit are going to look okay, be okay, and how much of them are going to get in trouble. But what we know is for the folks that do get in trouble, 90% of that use starts before the age of 18. So it's really, really important if we're going to get ahead of the uh, horrible addiction epidemic that we have ongoing in the United States right now, that we've got to focus a little bit more on youth prevention. And we know that every year that we can delay or prevent the exposure to those brains, uh, to substances that disrupt that development, that the better the outcomes are, that the uh, the more poorer outcomes and problems we can present. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for taking a whole college or medical class um, that could take a semester or even a whole year um, into five minutes or so, Laura. Such great information. Thank you.
you alluded to this a little bit, and I just want to go back. Um, I've heard the term um, quote unquote gateway drugs mm -hmm. um, before, and I think that's what you were referring to um, most commonly alcohol, um, um, marijuana, and tobacco. And do you see sort of that increased level of acceptance? I mean, certainly there's been a lot of legislation that has passed um, to loosen the access to marijuana. And I realize that there's different kinds, but mm -hmm. um, share with us, Laura, um, some of your thoughts about that. Um, what, what do parents and caregivers and community stakeholders need to be aware of as we talk about these, um, again, quote unquote, gateway drugs? Yeah. And, you know, I, I try not to use the term gateway. Uh, okay. And I'll explain to you why. Gateway, there used to be a theory that drug use was progressive and mm -hmm. that, like, that like nicotine was a gateway. And then that made the brain more susceptible to this drug. And then that use made and it, and it. And it's not that kind of a logical train. What, what it is, is that the exposure of that young, developing, vulnerable brain to any substance at all with mm -hmm. its potential can disrupt that development. It's just that alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana are the substances that kids can get their hands on most often. Okay. Those are the ones that are perceived to be less harmful. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and another thing that complicates it is the, the perception of well-meaning adults that you know, we can't, these kids are going to experiment with something and we can't stop it. So if at least it's, if it, at least it's not heroin, they're going to be okay. If they got to use something, this is better. And, you know, that misperception is also very dangerous. Yes. Uh, we, and, and, and it falls in the face of what is actually happening in the United States with all of the, uh, the information and the focus on wellness and maximizing potential and all the great stuff that we're talking about and you talk about on Mind Your Mind about, you know, healthy ways to manage stress, mm -hmm. the trauma-informed perspective. How do we give people the tools they need, pump up the protective factors in their lives so that when tough times and stress comes, they'll have the skills, they'll have the resilience to be able to make good decisions about that. Well, that, with all that going on, kids are actually making good choices. Uh, the, the, the research and the surveys that are done every year actually show that greater and great number of kids are making a wellness-based decision to not use any drugs or alcohol until they're adults. And wow. Yeah, and, it, and that's a wonderful thing, but we need to be supporting that. And, mm -hmm. and we also need to be aware, make, raising the awareness that all youth substance use is risky, that there are different conversations to be had around any substance in a fully developed adult over the age of 21 that's fully capable of making informed, responsible decisions of what risks they want to take and what may or may not be legal to do in their states. But when you're under 21 and that brain is developing, there is absolutely no such thing as safe or harmless use. All right, thank you for being crystal clear about that, Laura. I, I greatly appreciate it and I know our listeners do as well. Um, Laura, you've mentioned uh, or referred to this as, as you know, this is a podcast about mental health and 
So can you share with us what you see as the correlation between mental health and substance abuse? Does one necessarily or more often come before the other? Are they interrelated or is there a positive correlation there? You know, Irene, if I had a crystal clear answer to that question, I, I could, uh, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't be sitting in this room talking. <laughs> I would, I, I, that's a very difficult question to, to answer. Okay. It is, it's, there are multiple factors that go into that. Uh, I do know uh, from the substance use prevention work I've done in the community, I've, uh, I've, I know a lot of folks that are in recovery themselves and are in the very important recovery supports that are in the community. And very often, a, um, a um, person who is, is in recovery is going to tell you that I just completely lost my train of thought for a second. That's okay. Able to edit this. <laughs> yeah, we, we can. Um, okay. So a, a person in recovery, I'm sure the. Um, oh, what came first? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. All right. So we're we're back on. So a person okay. in, a person uh, in recovery. Much, a very often people in recovery will tell you what that what got them into trouble is they were trying to self medicate with. Um, self-medicate what either they didn't know mental illnesses they have, they were self-depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder. So they had undiagnosed mental health conditions that, um, that they were doing what worked to make them feel better and made them help them to function temporarily until, and you know, with the process of addiction, uh, over time, it takes more and more of the substance to get the same effect. And that obsession of next use then brings you to that, 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 um, that end stage of addictive disorder where you're not functional at all anymore. So there's a lot of folks that got there that way. We do know one, and one of the things that uh, really concerns me most about the youth and the, all the variety of nicotine and vaping products there's been a huge amount of research in the last couple of years that has shown a clear connection between nicotine use and addiction and anxiety in kids. Kids wow. who use nicotine score higher mm -hmm. on, on um, screening tests for depression and anxiety than kids that don't. And, and that flies in the face of the perception of that's portrayed on the media, on TV. You know, people are under stress. They're going to light a cigarette or something to calm down. So in an, area, in an era where we're seeing an absolute crisis in youth mental health, an increase in youth depression and anxiety, even before the COVID pandemic, which has mm -hmm. exacerbated everything, uh, we, we have a lot of use by kids who think it's harmless that are, that, that are actually using substances that are actually making their situation worse. Worse, wow. That that's that's to me is of great concern. And then we're up against, and, and you mentioned the you know the industries and the legalization of marijuana. You're up against uh, highly capitalized companies that spend billions of dollars on advertising and lobbying in order to make their products more accessible. But the the problem is when we make those products more accessible to, to adults, we've done a very poor job in this country of not letting kids get access. Mm, yes, absolutely. 
Wow, thank you for all of that information. Um, Laura, I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit here and you continue to hold leadership positions in your National Professional Association. Tell us about some of the innovative programming and education that the pediatric nurse practitioners industry um, has brought to the profession and that you are playing a key role in. Oh, that, you know, being a nurse practitioner and especially a pediatric focused advanced practice nurse, and as you may know, uh, nurse practitioners and other advanced practice nurses are nurses who've gone back for advanced education for doctors, doctorate degrees or master's degrees in an area of focus. And because we come at it from being nurses first, I think that gives us a, a very unique holistic perspective in the healthcare industry of, of seeing the big picture and seeing the whole, the, the, the whole picture. And, and it's not just a child is a part of a family, but a family is part of a community. Mm. And how well that child is and how well that family is and how well that community is, and how well people are doing in that community, those things are all intricately, intricately connected. Uh, you know, we, we, we saw some of that exposed uh, quite, quite clearly during the beginnings of the COVID epidemic when schools were closed, because mm -hmm. suddenly we had tens of thousands of children who uh, were from high poverty families who qualified for free and reduced lunch for food, then now we're worried about in food insecurity because right. now they're not going to school. And right. communities mobilized in a big way to help fill those gaps. But, but those social determinants of health have a, a great deal to do with wellness and prevention. Uh, you know, we've talked before about adverse childhood experiences and how adverse childhood experiences uh, and childhood trauma can negatively affect people's mental and physical health through their lifetimes. So uh, it, what, what, a lot of what we're focused on in, as pediatric nurse practitioners is not just the clinical role of the patient in front of us, but how can we impact some of these risk factors uh, that kids are coming through? And one of the things that, I, you know, and a lot of it's being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was on the executive board of my professional association, which is NAPNAP, the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, at a time when we spun off a foundation called NAPNAP Partners for Vulnerable Youth. So what we're involved in with it is these five-year focused campaigns on a specific population of vulnerable kids. So uh, our first five-year focus was raising awareness and helping to educate health professionals and others about the issues around child trafficking, both okay. child and labor trafficking. Uh, that initiative is continuing, and we're starting a, a two new five two new five-year focus programs. One aimed at uh, youth in foster care, mm -hmm. combating and preventing youth suicide, because we've seen such a huge in increase in youth suicide attempts and completions over the past 10 years, which, you know, uh, any loss of life is, is a tragedy, but a, a loss of a young life to self-harm, I, I think is just a tragedy that goes beyond. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and so I continue to be, you know, I continue to be active in those roles. And I've been lucky enough to be in positions where I could, uh, I could really work on some of those impactful programs. And I just like to, to continue to bring the knowledge and the experience I have to, to the communities I work with and the groups I work with and uh, try to help move that, that needle of the health and wellness of our kids forward. Mm-hmm. Laura, I, I really like what you said about um, it's not only the child um, as a part of the family, but the family is part of the community. And that's one of the reasons why the collaborative has a civic engagement um, focus or initiative, because we know that communities that have high levels of civic engagement typically have better health outcomes for their residents, um, better employment, um, lower crime, schools tend to have higher test scores and higher attendance rates because people feel connected to their community and they feel supported and they they want to play a role in helping that community thrive so thank you for tying that in as well um so laura as our time together draws to a close today is there anything that i did not ask you that i should have We've covered a lot of ground. We have. <laughs> I think my only, the only thing I would say in closing is, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about um, the risks and the issues, but we have a lot of power too about talking about how we can bolster protective factors for our kids. Because, uh, you know, kids make bad choices when they're trying to manage physical pain, social isolation, school stress, performance stress and athletics, or they, they are in situations where their family supports aren't there or there are other challenges in their community. But we can surround all those kids with a myriad of protective factors, connection, relationship, and all of those negative factors can be overcome by a community who surrounds their youth in protection and support and uh, opportunity. So uh, it, 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 we have a lot of power for good that we can use to really help our kids overcome the pandemic, overcome mental stress, overcome anything that they're dealing with and come out of it stronger and healthier and better able to take on the than the problems of the next generation. The challenges that um, our generation will leave them with. (laughs) Unfortunately, that that is true. (laughs) Yes, and I love that. And I think that's why we're starting to see more often the use of the term PACES, positive and adverse childhood experiences. Because we know that um, if you think about it, uh, like as a seesaw on a fulcrum, we can more than outweigh, um, as you said, those, those negative, um, outcomes or um, tendencies by those positive connections. Um, and there's so many opportunities for community members to be involved, to serve as a mentor, to serve as a community coach, to just lend an ear, to help a family out, to maybe offer um, respite care to a foster family, as you mentioned. You know, let, let, let me take your children um, 
assuming, of course, all the safety protocols are in place, right? While you two um, or you go out and enjoy a little shopping trip or a quick um, coffee break for yourself. I mean, there are so many ways that we can support mm -hmm. each other, right? And ultimately yes. improve outcomes for children and families. So. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these big picture problems seem so overwhelming and uh, it's just like I, I, there's nothing I can do to affect this. But we can start, you know, with modeling those types of things in our own families, on our own street, in our own neighborhood. And uh, those, those are the places where just those positive efforts to show kindness and connection and support uh, is, is so important. And if we all do that, the synergies are, can be of impact that are unimaginable. Absolutely. So what a positive note to end on. Thank you, Laura. And thank you for taking time out of your schedule to share your thoughts, your knowledge, your extensive expertise with us and, and with our listeners. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Listeners, thank you for tuning in today. And to be sure that you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe to our Mind Your Mind Speaks podcast. Also, please don't forget to leave us a review on Apple. Until next time, then, remember there is no health without mental health. Please mind your mind and keep an eye on the loved ones in your life.